a lot of the news cycle related to maternal health, particularly for people of color, is terrifying. And the last thing that we want to do is make people more scared. I mean, I think it's important also to be clear about what's happening and what the risks are and to state them plainly. But if that's all we do, we're not being helpful. And so I think that at the risk of being too abstract, for a friend or a family member who's pregnant or anybody who were to ask me, I think remembering that adage that a bad system will beat a good person every time is actually really important in a pragmatic way, which is if you feel like you're not being seen or heard, sometimes the most useful thing that you can do tactically is just to remind the person who's meant to be caring for you that they need to slow down. And that even if they think that, you know, what you're feeling is quote unquote normal, it doesn't feel normal to you. And I think that that often leads to a reset and can make a big difference. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. As a mama of four, I know it can be anxiety-provoking to be pregnant and hear about pregnancy and risks. So I want to give you a heads up that we will be talking about some tough stuff today. Things I do feel you ought to know, especially if you're pregnant or planning to have a baby someday. If this feels like a lot to listen to right now, please do listen. But when you feel you're in a safe and nurturing space to consider the discussion and take care of yourself, if you do feel triggered in any way, I do feel like this is a valuable interview for anyone who is planning to have a baby or is pregnant. Last month, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force warning of a rise in hypertensive disorders among pregnant women recommended monitoring pregnant women's blood pressure throughout pregnancy, something that midwives have done for decades and continue to do in our postpartum care. High blood pressure disorders in pregnancy are serious for both mama and baby, and they've doubled in the last three decades, now affecting one in 10 pregnancies. And we know that they're a big part of the U.S.'s notoriously poor record on maternal health. More than three times as many women die from pregnancy-related causes in the U.S. compared to other wealthy countries. And in contrast to almost every other country, the U.S. maternal mortality rate has been on the rise for the last couple of decades. So these new guidelines are an important change, but they don't substitute for addressing the upstream factors that harm our health before we even become pregnant and that cause hypertension as well as other medical problems. From nutritional factors to chronic stress, to night shifts, to the impact of weathering and our zip code on our health. Increased BP checks are a potentially life-saving necessity given the status quo, in the same way that food banks are a necessity when the real answer is food equity. We wouldn't need them if we had a healthier society. Systemic changes, along with midwives and doulas, are much more effective answers to our maternal health crisis. Today, I'm joined by ob Neil Shaw. I first had Neil on the podcast some years ago when we dove deep into what's behind the huge rise in cesarean sections over the past four decades. Today, we discuss the roots of our growing maternal health crisis 
and the potential solutions to it. Dr. Neil Shaw, MD, MPP, FACOG, is Chief Medical Officer of Maven Clinic, the world's largest virtual clinic and the first unicorn technology company for women's and family health. He's also a visiting scientist at Harvard Medical School, where he previously served as an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology. As a physician scientist, Dr. Shaw has written landmark academic papers on maternal health and healthcare policy and contributed to four books, including as senior author of Understanding Value-Based Healthcare, which industry leaders have called an instant classic and a masterful primer for all clinicians, and I couldn't agree more. He's listed among the 40 smartest people in healthcare by the Becker's Hospital Review. As a public advocate, Dr. Shaw's work to build trustworthy healthcare systems has earned numerous honors, including the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Humanitarian of the Year Award from the March of Dimes. He's featured in the films Aftershock, which won the Special Jury Prize for Impact at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, and The Color of Care from the Smithsonian Channel and executive producer Oprah Winfrey. Dr. Shaw founded the nonprofits Cost of Care and March for Moms, as well as the Delivery Decisions Initiative at Ariadne Labs, a research and social impact program at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Shaw currently serves on the advisory board of the National Institutes of Health Office of Women's Health Research. Neil, welcome back to the podcast. It's a total honor to have you here. Thank you so much, Aviva. I'm so pleased to have you here, and I just feel thrilled and really, truly honored that you made the time. So I know you're so busy, and I want to just dive right into the issues. So as I mentioned in the introduction, just this month, the CDC released new data on maternal mortality, and we know that the maternal death rate in the U.S. has been increasing over the past few decades. And this trend continued through the COVID pandemic, which added some nuances to things like preeclampsia. According to the new federal data, the U.S. maternal mortality rate increased by about 40% in 2021 compared with a year earlier. This is scary stuff. So I'd really love to just dig in with you to the systemic reasons for this worsening crisis. I mean, to me, it seems that there are three general categories. There are the things that we have some degree of control over, like nutrition, exercise, and stress management, and things that are really inherently systemic, like economic stressors or the weathering effect of racism. And then there are aspects of conventional medicine that you and I have talked about before, like unnecessary C-sections, which we know could potentially be shifted, for example, by more widespread utilization of midwives. So I'm asking you a huge question, but in your view, which is very expansive, what are the big causes and potential solutions we need to be thinking about? That is a big question. First of all, delighted to be back talking with you, Aviva. And I would just do this, even if we weren't on a podcast, just to mindshare around these really big, challenging problems with maternal health. You know, I think the first thing that I want to say is these are scary statistics. And I think it's often hard to translate the way that we think about measuring maternal mortality to what it means for individual people who I imagine are the people who are listening. I also know that the blaring headlines on maternal mortality year over year are probably triggering for a lot of people, particularly people of color who've experienced racism in their day-to-day life in healthcare settings and just, you know, in their broader life. So I think one of the most important things is that when we think about what to do about maternal mortality, first of all, you can't fix what you're not seeing and you can't see what you're not measuring. So we weren't even measuring it systematically until a couple of years ago. And the reason why we have these headlines is because now we are. 
And so we see these increases. And of course, COVID had devastating effects on people who are pregnant in direct ways, uh, about maybe 40 to 50% of that overall increase between 2021 and 2020 was directly due to infection. But, you know, the majority of it was actually due to the indirect effects of COVID-19 and the ways that it strained the healthcare system. And I think this is very like kind of in line with, I think, the spirit of this podcast. I think the medical orthodoxy failed pregnant people in ways that were put into stark relief during the pandemic. I think that, you know, everyone has an opinion on what pregnant people should or shouldn't do to be safe. And I think that the stakes of what we think of safety feel like they're increasing amid rising year-over-year mortality. And yet many of the things that we did with the intention of protecting people during the pandemic paradoxically had the opposite effect. So what do I mean by that? Well, for starters, one of the single most important things that we could do to prevent mortality in 2021 would have been vaccinating pregnant people. But we were really sluggish in being clear about that. In fact, pregnant people were one of the last groups to get guidance from the CDC on vaccination and then remained one of the least vaccinated groups as a result. Another example is that we insisted that pregnant people come in to a physical office 14 times over nine months, which is a lot, right up until the pandemic. And then we completely changed our minds. We we're like, oh no, pregnant people should be the last ones to come in because we're you know, over capacity and pregnant people are vulnerable. And so we should not expose them to the possibility of infection. But what actually happened in practice is that a lot of folks just didn't get the care they needed. And, you know, you mentioned Aftershock, the documentary, the case of Amber Rose Isaac is very much a person who developed a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy during the pandemic in April of 2020 in New York City, called the health system multiple times, expressing concern, and just couldn't get through to someone who could see her in a timely way. And it was a difference between life and death. I think there are so many examples. Uh, The fact that we restricted visitation across the board, including for people in labor. And then again, particularly for people of color, they didn't end up having advocates. And that, at the very least, eroded trust uh, in the system at a time where trustworthiness was table stakes. So there were all these things that had seemingly good intention, but the impact uh, in many ways was the opposite. Do you feel that the delay in vaccinating pregnant people in any way had to do with that initial sense of I think even for those of us who are non-religious, we were kind of in this thank God moment because in the first bunch of months of COVID, it seemed like pregnant women were largely being spared the significant adverse outcomes. And then all of a sudden, you know, six months, a year in, we were like, wow, that is not true at all. And there's this increased risk of hypertension and preeclampsia. But I think many of us had a false sense of hope initially. 100%, myself included. I mean, I think even compared to flu, or other types of infections that can be devastating in pregnancy, it wasn't clear initially that people who were pregnant were more severely infected. What was clear from the get-go is that people of color were more severely impacted because of the disruptions to prenatal care. That was very clear. But I think, you know, as a scientist and a clinician, I have a stack of medical journals and am used to relying on an abundance of evidence to make decisions. I would say March, April, May, June of 2020, I've never had to rely on such shaky evidence to make what were essentially life or death decisions. It was basically case studies. And so I think there was an optimism initially, but clearly the data didn't bear out. It wasn't clear until fairly late, until 2021, really, that COVID-19 doesn't just affect your lungs, it affects every organ system, including the placenta. 
over the course of my work, one of the areas that I've been steeped in, particularly my training with midwives was in Atlanta with a collective of African-American midwives. So I can go back to 1988, the first time I saw a woman of color, a Black woman, be dismissed from medical care. This was a groundbreaking case in the sense that she was seven and a half months pregnant, had severe abdominal pain, went to a high-end white community hospital, didn't have insurance, and was sent from that hospital to Grady Hospital, which was the inner city hospital where many of us actually did internships. And by the time that she arrived there, she had had a uterine rupture. She lost the baby. And it was at that time that actually regulations were changed in Atlanta that any hospital had to take anyone in emergency, even if they didn't have insurance. So it's easy to say, yes, COVID kind of, as you said, put some of these disparities into relief. But these disparities are really deeply endemic in our medical system, and our obstetric system. I've interviewed Jess Clemens, Dr. Jess, she's a psychiatrist in New York, Kimberly Seals-Allers, and really well-educated Black women who have said to me, even when they're going in for routine prenatal care or routine obstetric care, they feel like they have to identity drop and code switch. Like Jess would say repeatedly, oh, I'm a doctor at her prenatal visits, whereas I wouldn't have to do that. I might for some reason, but not to feel safe because of the color of my skin. So how much of what we're seeing with maternal mortality right now do you feel like is an impact of weathering, the impact of being the recipient of bias over the course of your lifetime and how that can impact your health? So that can contribute to chronic stress that can lead to hypertension. So how much can we say there's weathering? How much can we say there's nutrition? How much can we say there's the obesity epidemic, sedentary lifestyle? And then also what's happening when a pregnant person does actually go into the hospital? And I, I call it gets Serena Williams. You know, they get dismissed, ignored, told their problem isn't really their problem, as happened with Amber Rose Isaac. Yeah, I mean, I think probably the best way to answer that question is to explain how the CDC changed their definition of what they considered a preventable maternal death between 2018 and a few months ago. But in 2018, they said three out of five deaths were preventable. And that was based on a review of what was on the death certificate, which is a medical diagnosis. And it would have things on it like hemorrhage or cardiovascular disease. And, you know, of course, the reason to interrogate the root cause of a maternal death is so you can do something about it going forward, right? And there are opportunities to better manage hypertension or hemorrhage. But the thing is, like, you know, I've seen people survive a severe hemorrhage. And I've seen people not survive a more moderate one. When people die, their heart stops. And so cardiovascular conditions could be labeled as the cause. But if you widen the aperture on causes, as is being done through maternal mortality review committees, you start to integrate some of the systemic effects. And based on that guidance, we now think that four out of five are preventable. And honestly, if you widen the aperture enough, you'd probably see that the overwhelming majority, maybe even five out of five, are truly preventable. All just depends on your definition. I mean, I guess to answer your question directly, I don't know what the percentage breakdown is of causes, but part of the challenge of racism in 2023 is that it's truly insidious. And what that means is it's hidden in plain sight. So there are the kind of egregious cases that make it into the news media. Then there's sort of the routine things that have been kind of made formulaic in the way that medicine is practiced. So just to give everybody an intuition for this, I mean, when you're an intern, a brand new doctor, when you were at Grady, 
your main job was to know if people were sick or not. You know, you weren't expected to have this huge fact base in your head. You kind of were. But the, your main job for your clinical team was to tell them, this person is sick, this person isn't. And if you were right, you were celebrated as a person who had great clinical intuition. And right on that line of clinical intuition is often, you know, what's effectively racism. Because if somebody is like bleeding, you might have been taught to recognize that they could be pale, right? But if you're melanated, you might not be pale. And so there'll be a delay in responding to you. Or you might have just been sort of accustomed to, I don't know, uh, a slower response time for, for people of color. In our actual formulas in the practice of obstetrics for a long time, we've treated Black people and Hispanic people specifically as different. So we have we have a different anemia cutoff for Black people, or we did until relatively recently. Yeah. We had a different cutoff for predicting success for eventual delivery. Uh, and all of that was part of a routine practice that nobody questioned. It was just hidden in plain sight. So when I interned at Grady, this was like, I'm going to really date myself, but circa 1985, and I interned as a midwife there. As a home birth midwife, we did rotations there to just volunteer, but also see what was happening in the hospital. So this was really in the day where like everyone got an enema. They called it high, hot and hell of a lot. And babies were still turned upside down and spanked on the butt. In those early days of being a midwife, and I was working in a largely black community, and we were taught that a lower hemoglobin and hematocrit was normal for women of color, for black women particularly. And even back then, I really questioned that and whether that was true physiologically. It made no sense that on average, Black folks had lower hemoglobin and hematocrit. And yet my training was that lower hemoglobin and hematocrit puts you at higher risk if you do hemorrhage. So even in my practice back then, in the 80s, 90s, myself and other midwives, we weren't actually following that. We were still kind of treating everyone as if they're Hemoglobin and hematocrit should ideally be at a certain level equally. And I think that was kind of prescient or intuitive wisdom that we had. I don't know why we thought that, but we really did. And now we know that we shouldn't be making those separations that way. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge has just been a lack of precision. We should take people's race and their social circumstances into account, I think, when we provide public health guidance or when we practice medicine or provide clinical services more broadly. But, you know, for example, when we're talking about the maternal mortality crisis, it's important to be specific that it disproportionately impacts Black people. And there are reasons for that, because unless you unpack the way anti-Black racism works, you can't do anything about it. At the same time, we shouldn't be treating Black people or anybody as somehow biologically different when we see the impact, because then what ends up happening is you end up gatekeeping important services, whether it's a blood transfusion or anything else. And just to provide another example, like during the height of the pandemic, it was early. So probably March of 2020. And I was on call in my hospital. And it was a terrifying time. Like we didn't have enough capacity, meaning we literally couldn't admit more people. And we're trying to be really judicious about only admitting people to the hospital who are sick enough to require hospital level care. And there was a person who called me who called from one of our community health centers in Chelsea, which is a city in the greater Boston area that was hardest hit by COVID. By the way, Chelsea is a community that has a lot of Hispanic people that live in multi-generational housing that were doing what were considered essential jobs. So this is somebody who was like driving a bus for a living, could not earn money through Zooming, you know, uh, on a computer screen. And she called the hospital and I had criteria on a piece of paper to triage whether or not she was sick enough to come in. And 
you know, I suspected she had COVID based on her symptoms, but she wasn't quite sick enough. She was a pregnant person. And I gave her the guidance per my algorithm to stay at home and self-isolate. And she told me that she couldn't because she lived with her parents and her children. There was no way that she could practically self-isolate. And yet she's somebody who, by the biological criteria, I couldn't admit to the hospital. And to this day, I still have no idea what happened to her. But she was clearly sick and frightened. So COVID definitely has shown a light, even though we really need to highlight the fact that this is much worse for Black and Hispanic women. Even in certain states in the U.S., the mortality rate has gone up for white women as well. So this is not something that any of us are necessarily spared of. Can we dig into the things that pregnant people and women can do to take care of themselves? One of the things that I find myself really challenged around, Neil, that I'd love to hear your thoughts on are the relationship and role of obesity, because we know that a lot of the data that's coming out on BMI may also have some racism inherent in it, and that BMI and weight don't necessarily mean you're less healthy. And in fact, we saw from some of the data in ICUs, people who were a little bit bigger bodied may have actually survived better than people who were underweight when they had severe compromise. But when it comes to pregnancy, one, there's a lot of fat shaming that happens in medicine and particularly for women who are in bigger bodies. That also plays out and ties into racism. But what is the role of our modern cultural obesity epidemic leading to potentially diabetes, gestational diabetes, hypertension? What do we need to know about that? In my current seat at Maven Clinic, I spent a lot of time thinking about the sort of Venn diagram between wellness and let's call it the like traditional healthcare apparatus, where you know the traditional healthcare apparatus is designed to rescue people, but it's not designed to produce health. Like health is not produced in the four walls of a clinic or a hospital. It's produced in people's homes, in their communities, in their workplaces. And that's where, you know, I think there's this intersection of biology and sociology and, and all the rest of it. I mean, I think to answer your question directly, the body positivity movement broadly is very important. And there is a lot of fat shaming across the board and including in pregnancy. And I think for a lot of plus size people, they encounter sometimes even amid well-intentioned medical advice, things that honestly conflate their weight with their true needs. So for example, like obesity is correlated with hypertension, diabetes, and other things that confer risk. And even obesity independently of hypertension, diabetes confers pregnancy-related risks. But somebody who is like plus-sized can labor entirely normally, right? Like we conflate like high-risk pregnancy and high-risk labor all the time. And we can end up eroding people's confidence in their own capabilities to give birth along the way. It's something that I saw all the time. And so I think like maybe the broader point is that no group of people is a monolith, whether it's plus size people or black people, like we're multidimensional beings. And I think that we have to, when we're taking care of individual people, or even for folks who might be listening and thinking about, you know, what is my pathway to bringing home a healthy baby at the end of the day? You can't just paint with a broad brush and say, you know, because you're a certain weight, that determines your fate automatically. Like we've got to think about that. And we also have to be Clear. Like it does make sense if you have a higher BMI to screen earlier for gestational diabetes. And then if you have gestational diabetes, it makes sense to think about your diet differently. Yeah, I agree with you so much. And I get concerned that 
much like we saw differences in hemoglobin and hematocrit and said, oh, well, that's just because of that factor. Let's not treat everyone equal. I am so supportive and in favor of body positivity and people not being weighed if they don't want to be weighed. And then I also worry that in our fear of calling out the medical aspects of what can happen with hypertension and diabetes based on many factors, weight being one of them, blood sugar, stress, all kinds of things can contribute, that we will start to become afraid to discuss those things with our patients that may actually be helpful for them. And I wonder what you think about those conversations and things like weighing in pregnancy, which has been very standard for the obstetric model, not so much for midwives. We're more typically concerned about other parameters like bundle height and nutritional status and blood pressure. I think that's fair. The thing that normally happens during every standard prenatal visit is like a weight, a fundal height, which is you know how big the uterus is, a check on the heart rate of the baby, and a blood pressure. Those are the things. And some of those things more than others are really oriented towards like what I think of as this rescue system. Even the schedule of prenatal visits, which is 100 years old, it coincides with the invention of a sphygmomanometer, which normal people call a blood pressure cuff, right? Like when we had that technology that allowed us to check blood pressure and the schedule of visits was actually based on the cadence of checking blood pressures so that you could detect preeclampsia. But then we applied that to everybody. And even the U.S. Preventative Task Force recommendation is, you know, the best way to prevent hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or to manage it is to just, you know, screen people more. But I think to your point, like if you were to widen the aperture a little bit, that is a way to prevent, but it's actually not really a way to prevent. It's a way to rescue people who are already right downstream. But if we really want to prevent, we've got to go upstream. So there's weathering, right? Which is sort of an inherent factor in our culture that people come to pregnancy with probably two or three or four decades of behind them. There's the intersection of what happens when they encounter racism, sexism, genderism, ageism, body sizeism, whatever it is they encounter. And sometimes for people, it's many of those when they get to their prenatal visit or the hospital. And then there are those things that we can do, right? Like I think of the blood pressure checks as really important, something I've always done as a midwife. And in fact, remember one case where I agreed to be someone's doula. She had gone to her OB that morning. She really wanted to have a home birth. Her husband didn't. They needed to be in agreement and she decided not to. So I said, sure, I'll bring all the things to the hospital with you. This was back in the early 90s. And she had gone to her OB that morning, had her blood pressure checked, was weighed. I went and did her home visit a couple of hours later. And I looked at her, I'd only met her once before. And I said, you look like you've gained some weight since the last visit. She said, yeah, my OB weighed me this morning. I've gained 10 pounds. And she was in a third trimester. So she had gained 10 pounds. That's a, that's a red flag. And when I checked her blood pressure, she was 180 over 110. So we immediately went to the hospital and she was preeclamptic. So it's the checking the blood pressure is important. It's not preventative. Hopefully it will get people to sit up and pay attention to more of these factors. What are the things you feel like that people can do preventatively to address yeah. these multiple factors, including weathering, being prepared when they go into the system, but also things like nutrition, exercise, et cetera? I think the frame that I want to take to the question is what do 
people who are pregnant or might want to become pregnant? What do they deserve from the system? I love that. And I think, and then I think that translates to maybe what they can do. But I don't like the pick yourself up by your own bootstraps approach because it makes it seem like the the sole onus is on the pregnant person as opposed to all the rest of us who should have a stake in how they're doing. I couldn't agree more. I feel like that's one of the failings of wellness. It's like we should just take care of ourselves when the system isn't taking care of us and the onus should be on the system and our own personal responsibility. No, and I'm, I'm really conscious of that because, you know, wellness is an industry. Yes. And, you know, it's a fraught one because wellness is so important to all of us. And, you know, if you take the perspective that the onus is entirely on the pregnant person or the individual, then you can end up like hawking anything, <laughs> irrespective of whether or not it works. And I don't want to be overly prescriptive here, but you know, part of what brought me to Maven Clinic after spending like a decade trying to improve the brick and mortar system was this realization that really happened during COVID-19 and around that specific woman that I told you about who called me. Like there's rarely in life a cinematic moment where you're like, wait a minute, I'm seeing everything differently now. But like, I, I was so powerless in trying to help her. And then what the carry forward from that was like, for a person like her, what could I do differently if I wasn't limited to what I can do for her within my clinic? Mm -hmm. And instead, I could travel with her out into life, right? So an app will not fix healthcare, just to be totally clear. But the idea of Maven Clinic is to turn the device everyone carries in their pocket into a portal that can allow them to access a human service or information or education or coaching. Because I think wellness is largely about coaching. It's not just about do this differently prescriptively. It's about what is your goal? And then how can we work with you on a regular cadence to help you get there? Whether it's diet or exercise or just support. We did a survey recently and we published it that showed that 75% of people publicly insured and commercially insured have at least one social need. Where social need was defined as material needs, like, you know, housing, food, those kinds of things, but also things like, are you lonely, which is a huge impact on wellness. And the technical definition of loneliness is, do you talk to someone that you think cares about you more than five times a week? Well, and this is really interesting because the Interheart study, which was done many years ago, but it was a large multi-center study, showed that for women, at least, the impact of loneliness was equal to the impact of diabetes and other yes. major risks for cardiovascular disease. And why we would think that would be different in pregnancy is a little bit astonishing. It's totally astonishing, right? I mean, so I could be really prescriptive and be like, here's my favorite diet. But like the, the better approach is if you're trying to change your diet, either because you have diabetes or because you're just trying to change your diet, that's really hard to do. So like it's one thing to meet with a dietitian or a nutrition expert at some pre-scheduled time weeks away. It's an entirely different thing in 2023 to have somebody look through your phone at your refrigerator and help you plan a meal in real time. And that's the difference between a 34-week delivery and poor glycemic control and a 39-week delivery. And you know, in one case, you have months in the NICU and a lot of suffering. In the other case, you don't, right? Like if you have diabetes, you don't need a surgeon primarily. You don't even need insulin. You need someone to help you change your diet, not to tell you what your diet should be, but to coach you through your options in a pragmatic way based on what's available to you. Or to your point, the impact of social connection, which there's overwhelming evidence that says that this is a big determinant of our overall well-being. And the prevalence of loneliness and social isolation during pregnancy is astonishing. Or I think about, you know, a big part of wellness is just your sense of situational safety whether it's at the extreme of interpersonal violence or like living in a community where because of policing, 
for other reasons, you just don't feel safe or you don't have a sense of belonging. Yeah, it's easy to say somebody should get more exercise, but if they can't walk out of their front door, it's a whole different matter. 100%. And, you know, we have all these stereotypes about who suffers from those gaps, and they're quite prevalent in ways that, like, for me, were kind of unexpected. So, like, I'm very clear about the fact that in my current role, I cannot deliver a baby through a screen. You know, there's some things that need to happen in person. Yeah. Then there are some things that you could do in person or not. But then there are things that you can uniquely do if you give people the care and support that they deserve, which is much more than a punctuated 15-minute visit. Yeah. I really appreciate what you said. And I think in asking you the questions about nutrition and exercise, et cetera, I realized I wasn't really asking you for something prescriptive, but more, do you feel that in our current culture, they're inherent and endemic and that pregnant people are sort of barreling their way short of, you know, some personal genetic protection or miracle toward gestational diabetes or hypertension. And what I'm really hearing you're saying is that based on your many years of experience and what you're seeing now working with Maven, that the answer is really no, that there are a lot of factors that we can socially provide, clinically and medically provide, and that people can take advantage of that can prevent them from going down that road, hopefully. What I would say is I actually do think that we're barreling down in a direction that's not great. Like we see that in the data, right? There's more diabetes and hypertension and obesity than we've seen before. There's more maternal mortality than we've seen before. You know, the last generation compared to the current one, we are not heading in the right direction. Also, I'm optimistic that we can course correct and get to a better place. And my view of how to do that is not to solely focus on optimizing our healthcare system. And also, you know, at the same time, there's no substitute for like the structural reforms we need in our country, you know, whether it's policing, education, healthcare, other institutions that are inequitable by design. That being said, I do think that there is an emergence of ways of providing care and support outside of the brick and mortar healthcare system whether it's to, through digital services like Maven Clinic or just through, I think, a rising consciousness of the role of wellness and the fact that I think COVID-19 really stretched us. It, you know, it wasn't just that the healthcare system failed. It was that people were severely socially isolated and their material needs weren't being met. And I think that, you know, we see evidence in our politics and we see evidence in our institutions that are designed to serve us, that uh, there's not only recognition that that's the case, but real innovation to drive us to a better place. Neil, you've always been a midwife at heart, but I think you've been radicalized by COVID or something. I, I have been radicalized by COVID. That's totally accurate. So I had a bit of a cinematic moment with COVID as well. I had a patient who I had worked with some years before COVID she suffered from very severe anxiety disorder, was on medications and was struggling with her fertility. And she came to me more as for an integrative approach to her fertility. She had tried everything. Nothing was working. And she also didn't really feel safe being pregnant on some of the medications she was on, reasonably so. Some of them were a little bit questionable. And she ultimately was able to get off the medications and get pregnant and had a beautiful, healthy pregnancy and like this storybook, four-hour hospital birth and was gorgeous. She got pregnant again and she was due in maybe April. So this was super early on in COVID. About a month earlier, she was informed by her hospital that she would not be able to bring her husband or her doula. Now, the significance of this for any woman is really overwhelming to go into your birth with no personal support like that. 
and also somebody who's wanting protections from interventions they might not want by their doula and their partner. And then add to it, this woman also having predisposition to sky high anxiety. So that was sort of my clarion call to the ability of the system to isolate people when they're in need. I actually understood where the system was coming from. And I understood where hospitals and doctors were coming, nurses were coming. Absolutely. And at the same time, it seemed like an infringement on her reproductive rights and her human rights to not be able to have support in a medical setting. So I quickly started galvanizing and created a hashtag, I deserve birth support, and then started teaching ad hoc birth classes, self-advocacy classes. That led into about 40 hours of free ad hoc classes and about 14,000 people signing up for this Facebook page and then started doing a weekly support group. And we saw really enormous gains from that. Yeah. I mean, COVID-19 didn't just radicalize me, like deeply humbled me. And I think that, you know, every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. And part of that humility is recognizing that we're not getting the results that we want. So we have to revisit how we think about the system broadly and be open-minded. I was very skeptical, for example, of digital health, you know, because you can't deliver a baby through a screen and obstetricians like midwives are pretty tactile. I value the in-person human relationships. Um, I was on the wrong side of that issue. You know, in the spring of 2020, you know, there was a lot of controversy around it. And I was one of the people who like very publicly uh, in April of 2020 was like, I actually think it's the right call right now. You know, and it was based on fear and it was based on seeing people around me get very, very ill, patients and clinicians alike, uh, very ill. It was it was terrifying. Yeah. And again, also, please know there's zero judgment for me. It was a terrifying time. I mean, I'm so admiring no. that you continue to work in the hospital. You're a dad. You have kids. No, no. I, I mean, I think part of humility is owning it. Right. Mm -hmm. And also, I think as we think about the best way forward, like what should happen in person, what shouldn't happen in person, what is the type of care and support people deserve broadly and, you know, let alone the modality for how it should happen. Part of humility is updating your priors, you know, and so some of the people that were most impacted by visitor restrictions, for example, were the people who not only were most likely to benefit from the level of social support that they need, but, you know, there were people who felt like they needed an advocate to be safe in those settings. And I think that was a miss to not respond to that quickly enough. And it took hospitals literally years to update their policy. We were way too slow in updating our priors. So I guess as I think forward to what's possible, we know that people deserve more care and support than you can get in a 15-minute visit. I'm agnostic to whether you need 14 or eight. I think, you know, some people might need five, other people might need 20. You know, and it's okay. And I think that we should have flexibility. There's room to figure out what is at the core of what every person deserves to get every time. And we should deliver that reliably for everybody. And then we should also not be fixed and anchored to that and realize we have to personalize care and be flexible. And that care is not just provision of clinical services in a hospital, whether you get it digitally or you get it from your community. And I think actually, as I look out across the country, one of the things that gives me a lot of hope it's not just the digital innovation, it's actually the community-based uh, innovation. There are more community-based organizations focused on birth equity in 2023 than there were in 2020. Many, many more. And that gives me a lot of hope too. So what do you see as the potential for digital care? How much digital care do you think is possible for people in pregnancy as a model of care? I mean, I think that 
the fact that your zip code in the United States of America determines we have access to has been one of the biggest blights on our system. You know, and that's true across zip codes, but it's even true like within Boston or New York. Like if you live in Dorchester, what you have access to, if you have to take three city buses to come see me, is completely different than if you live on Beacon Hill. If you're in New York and you're from Jackson Heights, Queens, which is like where my family was from, if you looked at the headlines in March of 2020, it was the Elmhurst Hospital that was, you know, the epicenter of the whole global pandemic. And that was very different than, you know, living on the Upper East Side. And so the promise of digital health should make it such that what you have access to isn't only determined by your physical proximity to it. What do you think should happen with the telemedicine regulations in terms of reciprocity and interstate? Because there are states like Georgia, where I studied midwifery, where we have, I think, 180 towns, 90 counties that have zero obstetric provider. And that is the state that consistently has either the second highest or highest infant mortality and maternal mortality rates in the United States. What do we do? Do you feel like we should be able to provide prenatal care across states if we're willing to? Yeah, I'm a big believer in the American experiment, which means that I believe in federalism. And I think that Oklahoma should have different policies than New York on many different things that are best tuned to, you know, the needs of people in the Sooner State versus, you know, New Englanders. That being said, like healthcare is not one of those things that should be different on the state level. And we see that specifically around reproductive health and reproductive rights, but it makes no sense at all, the parochialism of state medical boards and the fact that if you're licensed to practice in New York, you can't care for somebody that is in a different state. It doesn't help people at the end of the day. You know, state medical boards have a role and it's an important one, but the parochialism, the idea that you have to have different licensure in different states to serve people in 2023 is bad for America. And we saw that the relaxation of those policies during COVID were enormously helpful in getting people essential services. Absolutely. I agree. That's how I feel. What are your thoughts on like the centering pregnancy model, which has been used in the UK for decades now, where group prenatal care, that expression, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts to me was so evident when I was running this weekly support group, which we're going to be picking back up as a formal program, but just what people could share with each other or the comfort that people got and the relationships that formed from those groups seemed to really have an impact. Yeah. I mean, I think a generation or two ago, people were primarily born at home and primarily supported by their proximate physical community. Society has evolved in many ways for better and for worse since then. But there's no doubt that when you're in a phase of life where you're undergoing such rapid change, physiologically, emotionally, professionally, socially, that being in community is really helpful. And we have to think about how we construct those community spaces differently. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of centering. I think that it, you know, the evidence is clear that it helps. The context matters too. You can't just bring a group of people together. You have to be thoughtful about how you're composing a community. But I mean, look, we just have to be more creative than a single clinician and a single pregnant person in a room for 15 minutes, 14 times. It's not working. We've got to do something different. Yeah. So given that so many pregnant people and birthing people will still enter this conventional system, what do you feel are some of the cardinal changes? Like if you could list three priorities that could change the obstetric culture or model to really start to move the needle, what do you feel those might be? Three things. The existential threat to the healthcare system as we know it in 2023 is trustworthiness. 
It's not the job of the people the healthcare serves to be more trusting of us. Mm -hmm. It's our job to be more trustworthy in an era where there are no editors, right? (laughs) So like you can't trust sources of information. Even the traditional institutional ones like the CDC have become less trustworthy over time because of inconsistencies and things like that. So there's three things in no particular order, actually. The first thing is we have to be competent. That means we have to produce equitable outcomes. And we're not doing that today, clearly, but we have to do that. I highlight that because it's not enough. The second thing that we have to do is be much more reliable and show up for people when they need us to and how they need us to. So if I were to ask the doctors that work in my hospital today to text their patients, they'd probably quit because they're not set up to do it. It would just overwhelm them. But in 2023, when you text people and you enable that kind of communication, they're way more engaged and they're willing to tell you things that they're not willing to tell you in the clinic in ways that are you know, really important. And then the third way is you have to affirm people. And to do that, you have to elevate not just technical expertise and how to do a forceps delivery as being important, but lived and embodied experience and the kind of expertise that comes from that. Uh, and there's really clear evidence that that makes a world of difference when it comes to maternal health too. It's beautiful. I feel like even just the texting, the ability to text, when I say to one of my pregnant patients, particularly when they're close to their due date, or if somebody's had a history of perinatal mental health challenges, here's my cell phone number. You can text me. Just watching people's shoulders drop, like I feel like that creates a trust factor. And I think most physicians don't realize that if, that most people are going to respect your space. They're not going to wantonly text you and well, interfere I- with you. And there are ways to set up systems that allow for it. That's the key. A bad system will beat a good person every time. You know, like every doctor, midwife, nurse, forward deployed healthcare worker, you know, they're the greatest people. They're the ones who showed up during a pandemic at personal risk. And they too were let down by a system that did not set them up for success. Mm -hmm. Of course, they would want to be able to text their patients. You can't when you're billing ICD-10 codes, you know, you just, just, you can't. We got to get to a place where we're keeping the true north in mind. And when it comes to, you know, people who are building their families or people who are pregnant, what people want is the smoothest path to bringing home a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. It's one of the only areas of healthcare where there's such a clear objective function that you're trying to deliver for people and meaning at the system level and everything else is just noise. You know, uh, I feel like we have to also expand this concept of healthy baby, healthy mother to what really, what does a healthy mother really mean? And how does a healthy mother also nurture a healthy baby? If a mom's not healthy, what does that mean for her baby's health? So that's another conversation about perinatal care, mental health, and postpartum mental health certainly really suffered for a lot of people during the pandemic as well. Totally. And what it comes down to for me, Aviva, is just that we need a higher standard than emerging from the process unscathed. Yeah. As Kimberly Seals Aller said, coming out the other side alive is not a high enough benchmark. It's not. It's not. People need to come out the other side empowered. Yeah. That's the bar. So, Neil, when there's so much gloom and doom news about the reality of giving birth in the U.S., how can people approach being pregnant right now without feeling too overwhelmed, too scared? I know that a lot of the news cycle related to maternal health, particularly for people of color, is terrifying. And the last thing that we want to do is make people more scared. I mean, I think it's important also to be clear about what's happening and what the risks are and to state them plainly. But if that's all we do, we're not being helpful. And so I think that at the risk of being too abstract, for a friend or a family member who's pregnant or anybody who were to ask me, I think remembering that adage that a bad system will beat a good person every time 
is actually really important in a pragmatic way, which is if you feel like you're not being seen or heard, sometimes the most useful thing that you can do tactically is just to remind the person who's meant to be caring for you that they need to slow down. And that even if they think that, you know, what you're feeling is quote unquote normal, it doesn't feel normal to you. And I think that that often leads to a reset and can make a big difference. That's beautiful, Neil. Thank you for, as an OB-GYN, reminding pregnant people, birthing people, soon to be pregnant or birthing people, that they can use their voice and create and nurture that relationship to be seen and heard and to speak up for their needs and their rights in that relationship. Neil, thank you for everything you do. It's such a pleasure to just listen to you and your wisdom. It's fun to watch you evolving in your work. And we'll put all the links to Maven, some of your recent articles and all the things in the show notes. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Aviva. Me too. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.